We are walking through a series called I Dare Ya, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we dared you to start dreaming again as we launched into this new year to believe that there's something that, with God's help, you could do and you're designed for, and that you could do it. You could jump into that dream and achieve that, and that God might just show up, and that you can overcome the obstacles and resistances to that dream, <clears throat> and it was, uh, it was amazing. And then last week, we talked about this idea that we could pass on a legacy to the next generation, that the way we lived and the way we followed God, the way we modeled it on the inside and then lived it on the outside would literally start a cycle of belief and generations could come that the plan God set in place way back in the beginning was that we would experience an exodus. We would get pulled out of slavery. We'd get pulled out of our former life. And then he gave us a Leviticus and he said, here's how to live free and so that you can experience the freedom. Here's the way to do it. And then when you forget, here's a Deuteronomy, another telling for the next generation of what God has done. And so we talked about last year that it's our job, or last year, last week, that it's our job to, to be that Deuteronomy, to pass on that next telling of what God has done for generation to generation to generation. And then this week, the dare is a little different because I'm gonna dare you guys to fall back in love. And for some of you, this is a tough one. For some of you, you're like, oh, seriously, pastor. And don't worry, we're going to talk about married folks, but we're not only going to talk about married folks. We're going to press in a little bit here. But I'm going to dare you to fall back into love. Now, I love talking about love. I get excited because I have all kinds of funny stories about love. I love that video, which is great. And it reminded me of, I had a, uh, I had a youth group girl many, many years, years ago. I'm going to give her a different name because I don't know if she listens to the podcast. We'll call her Lisa. Lisa's a good name for her. <clears throat> and Lisa was one of those girls at about age 13, she comes to youth group and she just lights up the room. We got a really big group and immediately knows she's there. She's loud. She's, people are following her. She's asking questions. She's offering to help. She's just natural leadership skills. And you're just like, wow, this girl's just on a, a, a stick of dynamite. She lights up the room. That's awesome. I got to find out about Lisa. So after youth group, I'm like, Lisa, get over here. Tell me your story. She's like, ah, I'm a leadership at my school, and I do this, and I do this, I do this, and, and I'm so excited because I think this God thing is going to be a big deal for me. I'm like, yes. And she's like, oh, and I have a boyfriend. I'm like, no. <clears throat> she's 13, right? I was like, tell me about this boyfriend. And she proceeds to tell me. I mean, this story is deep. She's like, listen, we're going to date 13, 14, 15, 16. Then we're 16, we're going to choose what college we're going to go to. At that point, we're going to make plans, start applying for scholarships so we can get to the same school at the same time and be there. By sophomore year, we'll get engaged. When we graduate, because I don't want to get married until we're graduated. Then we graduate, we'll get married. Three, four years in my career, then we'll have a kid. I'll take a break because by then he'll be able to sustain us. Oh, this girl's 13. And I'm just like, how long have you guys been dating? She's like, oh, two weeks. So I grabbed one of my other adult helpers. I was like, I just don't have a filter for this. So you take her and fix whatever is going on in her head. And she did, which was amazing. She embraced little Lisa and Lisa grew up. It lasted about two more weeks. There was a devastating moment, but she had this mama bear to throw her arms around her who became kind of her person. And they walked through life. I think she even lived with my, my staffer for one, one period after high school. And it was just hilarious. But every season of our lives, we just define love differently. And our picture of love changes. I married my high school sweetheart. I think I shared before, we had a, a great dating relationship. We got engaged after sophomore year of college. So we were kind of on that path, right? And I did some premarital counseling. And I just got to be honest with you. I was arrogant. We'd been dating for five and a half years. 
by the time we did this, I'm like, who needs premarital counseling? What are you going to teach me about this person I've spent the last five and a half years with, right? So I didn't take it very seriously, which led to postmarital counseling. <laughs> After one year, we were a hot mess. And the main reason we were a hot mess is she never went home. It was way easier to be in love when she went home because how am I supposed to play a whole season of NBA Live in one night if she doesn't go home? It's interrupting my video game time. So we're going to have tension. <laughs> she didn't want to clean and pick up my socks. She's like, I'm not your mom. So we had some tension. And so I tell everyone, go to postmarital counseling. Go to premarital counseling, pay attention, and then still go to postmarital counseling. It'll help. <laughs> but love changed. In that season, we had to grow and we had to evolve and the type of love that we had had to change. And it wasn't all just butterflies in my stomach anymore. There were things we had to do. Then we had kids and love changed again. The season changed. Time started changing. I lost hair and grew a belly. She had to love me differently. She stayed the same. It was unfair. Remains unfair to this day. But love changes per season. So here's the thing. If I'm going to challenge you and invite you to fall back in love, we better talk a little bit about what we mean when we say the word love. Because love's a complicated word. Because I love the Niners. But I don't love them the way I love my son. But it's the same word. And I don't love my son like I love pizza. But it's clear that I love pizza. So what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, right? What is love? We've got to define it. And if I'm calling you and daring you to fall back in love, what do I mean? And if the scriptures, if there's some chance that the scriptures challenge us to go back into love over and over again, what kind of love is that? And what does it mean? So we got to do a little vocabulary to get started so we know about love. Now, you may or may not realize this, but the Bible wasn't written in English. And because it wasn't written in, in English, sometimes words get translated into English that mean different things or have different meanings. The Bible actually, in Greek times, when the New Testament was written, when Greek was the primary common language, there was actually four, I'll say four and a half words for love. And every time they show up in the scriptures, it says love. But it means something different every time. So let me take you on a little quick whirlwind tour of the types of love that show up in the Greek culture that was prevalent when the Bible was written, when the New Testament at least was written. So what is love? Words for love in the Greek. I'll give you four, four and a half, right? First one is this, phileo. This is companion love. This is friendship love. This is brotherly love. This is where you get the term Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love, right? Phileo, that's where it comes from. It's built right out of there. This is brotherly relational love. This is mutual with people that you care for. This is my love for my peeps. This is my homeboys, my sisters. This is my crew. This is when I'm rolling six, seven, eight deep, and we're out for a good time. These are my folks, right? Whatever, that, whatever your circle of relationship is. Some of you are like, Pastor Mike, were you really that gangster? I grew up in the ghetto little town, and we all pretended like we were gangsters. The real gangsters came when I was in high school, and then we ran away. But... <laughs> 
but yeah, this is your crew, your posse. This is who you know, this is your circle. These are people you choose to care about and they choose to care about you and you lean on them and they lean on you and you have adventures and stories and fun things and shared history and it begins a, a great relationship. But here's the thing about phileo love. It can be seasonal. It can be seasonal. Here's how I know it can be seasonal. You used to have phileo love with a, a person when you were in sixth grade. You had a sixth grade best friend. Do you still have that same relationship with your sixth grade best friend? Maybe a couple of you do, but most of us don't. But we can remember who we cared about the most maybe in sixth grade because they were, it was phileo, man. We were bros. We were sisters. We had shared experiences. We played at each other's house. We did stuff. So brotherly love like that can ebb and flow. It's seasonal. It's sometimes affected by distance, how close or how far you are to one another. Maybe it drifts. Sometimes it just drifts away, but it can just reignite right back up. But it's not always running hot in every relationship. This is the kind of love that shows up in the scriptures, like when Paul signs off on a letter, like at the end of Titus, when he says, everyone with me sends greetings, greet those who love us in the faith, right? Greet my brothers and sisters who love us in the faith. Greet those of us that are in the battle together. We have shared history, shared goals. We're connected to this shared idea of success. And so we got love for each other. The love for my peeps. That's phileo love. Now, the next kind of love that was commonly referred to in that time is eros love. Now, you know eros love because you know Cupid, right? Pink, right? That Cupid love, that emotional, passionate love. Eros love. Now, this love is completely conditional. That passionate love ebbs and flows in the same day, right? Here's how I know your passionate love goes and flows in the same day. Are you hungry? My love changes. Am I tired? <laughs> that passionate love changes. Did you leave your socks on the floor? I feel differently about you right now than I did five minutes ago. That love changes all over the place. It ping-pongs and batters around, and it's emotional, and just like you emotionally go up and down and up and down, that kind of love goes up and down and up and down. Some of you are like, I'm not, I'm this I'm like, okay, well, you're dead because we all have emotions and they go up and down and we all feel things. You're like, I'm a rock and I'm steady. And I'm like, yes, and you're lying because you feel things. This love can be based on chemistry, right? The sparks are flying. This is that brown chicken, brown cow, right? This is the excitement, right? Did you hear that? You guys picked that up, right? <laughs> this is that exciting chemistry. The sparks are flying. Hormones are going. My heart is fluttering. This love also can be very dangerous because it's based oftentimes on the satisfaction that someone gives you or something gives you. And it's very tied to the little half love that I was going to say because I don't think it's love, but it's a word that was used to represent and it was mania. And it's mania, like manic, like crazy, consuming, addictive kind of love, eros love and mania tied together. And they, they, they're all about this obsession and madness. And it's like an addiction, like WrestleMania. Yeah, we're all pumped and excited, right? But it's not lasting. It's just crazy. So that's eros love. Here's the problem. Many times we start our definition of love with eros love. We get this idea that Eros, emotional, I feel emotionally about this person. Sparks are flying about this person. This must be love. Now, let me tell you a little secret about Eros love. It never shows up in the Bible. 
the term eros. It was a common phrase in that time, but nowhere in the scriptures, you can Google this at home, does the word eros pop up. It's not in any of the direction. It's not in any of the instruction. It's not in any of the how to live like God. It's not in any of the teachings of Jesus. It's nowhere acknowledged as a relevant component of the love that exists inside the believer. But we all start with Eros love and it creates a tension in us. Now, is Eros love bad? No, emotions aren't bad. But when we define love as an emotion that we feel, we get away from what the Bible clearly teaches us about love. Now, is there ever any romantic love in scriptures? Yes, Song of Solomon's full of it. And, and, uh, and there are Hebrew words for that romantic love that, that are brought into the story that are important. But I think it's pretty profound to realize the entire New Testament never is that mentioned. One time, mania is in there in Acts, and it's like, they were crazy. It's like, okay, yeah, this is crazy. But that's it. Eros love never falls in there. You can process that and do what you want with it. Then you got storge love. Storge love. And this is devoted love. This is, I am completely devoted uh, to you. This is like um, Romans 12 when Paul's like, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. He's saying, be committed, be devoted to somebody in phileo love. He's like, have storge love in you the way you phileo love each other. Be committed to that. Be uh, connected, be devoted to that. Now, this kind of love is common in like, uh, uh, a, like a mom or a dad and a kid right? I'm devoted. I'm committed to you. This love has clear kind of relational uh, uh, expectations. Some people feel this kind of love maybe towards a pet. They're devoted to it. They're, they're committed. They care about it. They have a dynamic or relational dynamic with it. And this kind of love could be good or bad. I mean, this is the kind of love that keeps when your kid's crying all night, you don't just put them outside, lock the door and be like, oh, I don't care what happens to you. I'll be up in 10 hours, right? This is the love that keeps you from that. You're devoted to your role in the relationship. You're committed to it. You love that role in the relationship. Here's where that role gets crazy is sometimes we take that kind of love into other relational dynamics. And so this is the couple who uh, she says, oh yeah, I'm still raising him. I have to be his mom also. I have to do all the things and it gets out of balance. Or he says, oh yeah, you know, I need to make all the decisions for her because she's like a child and I have to be the dad in the relationship. When the relationship is supposed to be equal or, or relationally different and it devolves into these roles, that's when storge love gets unhealthy. But storge love is a good love if it's in healthy relationship boundaries. So that's what storge love is. It's dependent. And then there's a the kind of love that shows up in the scriptures the most. And you've heard this phrase probably before if you've been in church for a while, and it's agape love. Now, this is unconditional love. And you're like, how can you have unconditional love? You can only have unconditional love if it is not dependent on the recipient of that love. I can love something unconditionally if, I, if that love is not connected to the response, behavior, actions of that person that I'm loving. Because if it's connected to what they do and how they reciprocate and how they behave, then it can no longer be conditional because now I'm evaluating all of those things and determining how much I'm going to love them. So agape love is not dependent on the recipient. It loves the true value of the person. And God says, this is the kind of love you get from knowing me. Because you recognize the incredible internal value of every one of my creations that I breathed life into them, that I created them and formed them, that they're in the Imago Dei image of God. And because that's who they are, even when I have to block them on Facebook, I can still love them, <laughs> right? 
Even when I have to create a healthy boundary, I still love them. Even when they've been a knucklehead, I still love them. Why? Because I know who they are and I know who I am and I know who God is and I know he gives me the strength to love in a way that is outside of natural. It's supernatural connected to the identity of that person. And that's agape love. So why spend so much time walking through love? Because we have to understand that if love is connected to feelings and emotions, we are outside of the scope of what the scriptures ask us to do. The scriptures don't say, hey, make sure you have good feelings about Isaac. Make sure. You just emotionally are like, woo, love him. It's not that at all. The kind of love God calls us to over and over and over again is an agape love that says you make sure you never lose the incredible value of that soul that I put you in contact with, no matter how deep of a knucklehead he or she has been. So what kind of love am I daring you to fall back into? Well, this kind of love that God says is available for you and for me. Now, you might say, okay, how am I supposed to fall back into that love? That sounds like if love is unconditional, that kind of love, how do I fall out of it to fall back into it? That's confusing, Pastor Mike. Well, let's paint a picture for you. I'm in uh, Revelation chapter two, and then I'm gonna move to a couple different places. I told you I got like 90 minutes of stuff. I'm gonna move to John 13 and then 1 John 4 if you're one of those like to be ahead people. But I'm in Revelation chapter two. And Revelation is this incredible book that someday we'll get into the entirety of what's happening there. But John, who we love, the apostle John, is on an island having a vision. It's a short version of a lot of stuff. And he sees a picture of the future and a picture of Jesus. And God says, write some things down and pay attention to what's happening. And he gets this incredible picture. So in chapter two, he sees this incredible picture of a victorious, redeemed Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, write this down. And John's like, sir, yes, sir. And he's write some things down. And he says, I got some letters that I want you to write to some churches. Now I'm gonna talk to church people a lot today. If you're not a church person, probably some of the things that we're talking about right now is why you haven't been a church person very much because people haven't done the thing that we're talking about today. So church folks, some in-house work we gotta do today and church non-church background folks or maybe left the church folks, don't worry, we're gonna get this right and then you'll like us again. (laughs) So Revelation chapter two. Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking specifically to the church in Ephesus, an actual place and an actual time and an actual people, but he's speaking through time to all of us, to the church. And he says, hey, chapter two, verse two, I know all the things you do. I thought about, I could preach an entire message on just this incredible reality that Jesus speaks into earth and says, hey, I know all the things you do. I know all of them. I know what you think, I know what you say, I know what you do. I'm paying attention. How incredible. You know, (laughs) I love the picture that the scriptures give us of, you know, Jesus is so uh, ingrained. The father is so ingrained in our story that the scripture says literally every hair on our head is counted. That God's intimately connected with our comings and our goings. But there is a radical, crazy truth that church folks, we gotta pay attention to. He knows everything we do. Are we living like Jesus knows everything we do? Are we living that way? He's talking to church folks. And then I love this. He goes, I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. And I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. And you've discovered that they are liars. And you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. I love this. He's like, hey, good job, guys. You know what you've done really well? You've grown in your knowledge of good and evil. 
you've avoided evil and pressed towards good. People have come and tried to teach you things that were wrong about me. And because you know who I am, you have a reflection that you hold any teaching to. And if it is inconsistent with those teachings, you just reject that. That's brilliant. That is a great thing for the church to be doing. He goes, I see that. And you've gone through the suffering and difficulties. You haven't quit. You haven't tapped out. Verse four, but, uh uh-oh, (laughs) here comes the other foot. But I have this complaint against you. Listen to this wording. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, then I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Wow. Jesus says, you have intellectually got this right. Your theology is spot on. Your interpretation of of the scripture and my identity, you're totally catching it. And in the midst of all that, you stop loving people and you stop loving me. You missed the early thing that was the whole thing. The way you loved one another and the way you loved me, that's what started this. That's what ignited this. When you looked at someone and you saw their deep value, you had agape love for them. You saw their identity and you saw what could be and you saw the potential that God wanted to unlock in them. That was amazing. But once you got to the point where you were like, well, intellectually, this person's wrong. I have nothing to do with them. He's like, you lost my heart because it's for people. And because you did this, because you did this, you've fallen. And he says, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. What is the significance of that? Lampstand, like the idea of city on a hill, your lampstand was your light so that others would come, that others would find you. He's like, listen, I'm not sending anyone else to that sick place because you're so concerned about being right that you forgot to love the people I sent to you. Every single one of them. And so you want to watch a church shrink down and die and lose its lampstand, then you abandon that first love and you get caught up in the logistics. Are those bad? That's not bad. We should pursue all those things. We just can't pursue them and leave the first thing behind. And you know this is true. (laughs) I'm going to be ruthless for a second here. You know this is true. My Facebook warriors out there, you're like, I got to get truth on somebody. But you don't care if it devastates their heart and life. You don't salt that with the love of God. Or you see someone else's truth and you're like, that truth isn't the real truth. I'm going to give you the real truth. And it's just like, and you're just marching right into someone's heart with your intellectual pursuit and you forgot who they really are. You're like, I know who they are. They're an idiot. No, they're not. They're someone that God designed and loved and formed in his image. And maybe they're lost, maybe they're not, but that's who they are. And agape love says, I'll never leave behind an understanding of who you are, no matter how frustrated you make me. I may mute you and block you, but I won't stop loving you. And I won't wade in with my big sharp sword and try to slash your dreams and life apart just because it makes me feel good to be right. Now, here's the thing. Some of us just love being right. You love being right. You love it so deeply that when you got something on somebody else, you're like, mm. it's like succulent on your just like, mm. it's so good. I can't wait. I can't wait to see them. Because when I see them, I'm just going to 
unload. Or, oh, just post the thing. Give me the setup. I got the perfect thing. I'm going to come right behind that and just destroy your argument and your life. Right? And Jesus is like, dude, in that pursuit for that thing, you left behind the incredible value of the person. I'm taking your lampstand away. I don't want anybody around you. I don't want you attracting any more crowd. That's contagious and dangerous. We don't want that. Does that mean we never speak truth? No, we speak the truth in love. We never leave the value of the person behind. We never do. We don't get to. That's what agape love does. Here's the other thing you have to catch from this passage. It is clearly possible to have had that love and walk away from it. So when I dare you to come back and I dare you to fall back into that love, some of us are like, you know, I always do that. Really? When's the last time you evaluated the stuff that's coming out of you? Have you walked away from it? Have you subtly taken some steps and slid further away from that? Here's the thing, church folks. It's totally possible to have correct actions and be unloving, to have correct truth and be unloving. You can even have a discerning heart and recognize things that are deceitful, but left your love behind. Don't leave your love behind. Don't leave your love behind. So let's talk about why God cares so much about our love. <clears throat> I'm gonna give you two things. I got maybe enough time to do it. Two dares. Dare number one. I dare you to love one another. I dare you to love one another. Jesus, time and time again, says, love one another, love one another, love one another. My, one of my favorite passages is John chapter 13. And Jesus watches the disciples' feet. <clears throat> he knows it's getting close to the end. And he gets down and he takes a towel and wraps it around it. He looks about as undignified, maybe worse than me. <clears throat> and he gets down on the ground and begins washing their feet. And, and Peter freaks out. He's like, ah, don't wash my feet. And Jesus is like, if I don't wash your feet, then you've got nothing to do with me. He's like, wash all of me. Jesus is like, stop with the drama. Just let me wash your feet. Don't overreact. Let this moment be the moment. Peter, stop ruining the moment. Right? That's agape love. <laughs> you said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing. I love you because of who you really are, not because the words that are coming out of your mouth. And at the end of kind of this moment, he's having a conversation about what life's going to be like because he's leaving. And in John chapter 13, verse 34, he goes, now a new command I give you. And I love this because very seldom does he give commands. Usually it's an invitation, come and follow me. It's like, a, it's like a welcoming moment. But he's talking to the church folks. He's talking to the leaders. He's talking to the people who are gonna be examples of him going forward. And he's like, this command I'm giving you, love one another. Now, he doesn't leave it there because love one another is open for interpretation. We already said there's lots of love. He's like, hey, agape one another. It's like, what is agape one another? What are you talking about? He goes, do it as I have loved you. What did he just do? He just washed feet. He just served them. He's just listened to their knuckleheaded dialogue and recalibrated them. He just had a conversation about someone's going to betray him, and he didn't destroy him right there. He says, this is how you agape love. You do it in the model that I've demonstrated for you. So you must love one another. Why do you have to do that? Well, because by this, all men will know you're my disciples. 
if you love one another. He says, hey, there's a, there's a thing that's connected to this. If you will do this, if you will model this, if you will demonstrate that I see an internal inherent value in you and it is not connected to what you can do for me or how you please me or how emotionally I respond or the nature of our power control in our relationship, I'm not the boss and you're not the uh, 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 employee or servant or whatever. It's not because of any of those things. I love you because I see this incredible value in who you are. No matter what anybody says, I recognize that in you. He's like, if you model that and you take your strength, you take your power, you take your energy and you lift somebody else up. When you do that, people will say, hey, there's something different because that's an unnatural love that comes from somewhere else. He's like, that's when people will start going, oh, that's a Jesus person. That's what they're like. That's one of those followers. That was wild. I was in a situation and one of those followers showed up and they helped me out and they didn't ask for anything and there was no manipulation and it wasn't because of, it made them feel good. It was, it, it was just for me because I'm valuable to them. What is that? He gave so, the reality check was just this. He's like, listen, you're going to be perhaps the only Jesus that someone sees. Do you hear that, church? You may be the only Jesus that someone ever sees. Sitting next to you at work or in a classroom or in a car, carpooling, might be the closest they come to Jesus. Having a conversation with you. And the words that come out of your mouth might be the only Jesus they ever see. They may not like the same Facebook posts as you and get updates with scripture in them. They may not go online and read the same blogs that you read. They may not watch the same YouTube videos of uh, arguing faith. They may not have any of that. They may not go on TBN. I don't know where you're getting your, your stuff from, but they may not get any of that. And they may not show up here but they may float in your circle for a little while. They may be your Starbucks person. They may have a kid on the sports team with your kid, share a co-op. I don't know what they do. And you may in fact be the only Jesus that they see. So Jesus says, don't blow it because you represent me in that moment. No pressure. But the way you love and treat and value them will demonstrate that you're a follower of me. And that's how they'll know that something special and unique and it'll be attractive to them. And you may be that ambassador of his heart. So there's all these different kinds of love. And the kind of love I'm daring you to fall into requires drawing from the strength of God's love to do it. Because some of you are like, I can't even do that. I know. You weren't designed to do that by yourself. He says, I'm going to be the source of that love for you. I'm going to pour it into you so that you can give it away. Now, I'm going to talk to married folks for a little bit because we can't talk about falling back in love without talking to married folks a little bit. I've done a few weddings in my time now. You do enough years of youth ministry, you're going to marry some kids off. And I don't know if I've done a wedding. I've been to one, but I don't think I've done a wedding that hasn't di dived, dove, divin, dived, doved, dove, into the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 13, the love stuff. And many of you know this passage, but I'm going to throw it up here for you. Because I want you to catch something. When Paul's writing about love, he's talking about agape love. If you search this, it's, hey, this is agape love and what it looks like. Because you're like, how do I do that? He says, okay, agape love, self-serving love, love that self-sacrificing love, unconditional love, love that lifts the other person up, love that believes in the other person's internal value, no matter what their behavior is. That kind of love is patient. How's your patience? Can we stop right there for a while? Because I think that could land 
if you just applied that to your whole life, and I could probably leave, and you could just say, hey, how's your patience? But I'm not, because I want you to catch the next one. That kind of love is kind. It's kind. It's kind. That kind of love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Agape love never fails. You're like, ah, love fails. I don't feel the same way anymore. My emotions, they're not going the same direction. I don't have the same butterflies. You don't please me. I don't have the same role and control and power in your life that I used to. We're not bros anymore. Well, yeah, all those kind of loves can fail. They can fail. This kind of love can't fail. This kind of love works. This kind of love is true and it's authentic. And so I've stood with couple after couple after couple. It's the coolest thing besides what we just did over here that I get to do. And they look at each other and they make a commitment to love like this to see the core value of the person. Now, here's what's amazing about this. Is scientists are proving that this is the kind of love that works anyways. The world is starting to catch up to something that Paul jotted down for us some 2,000 years ago. There's actually a guy, and he's, he's at the UW, <clears throat> right? Um, what is his name? It's Bob uh, Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N, uh, John Gottman. And he's been for 40 years at the UW doing studies on marriage. He's got book after book after book. He's a public speaker. It's just right based out of right over here. Uh, and, uh, and he has, has basically been studying marriage and relationships for 40 years. And what he does is he brings newlywed couples in and he puts them through like a, uh, a little bed and breakfast weekend retreat. And they put them through some scenarios and they have some measurables and they measure these particular measurables. And he says that with 93% accuracy, he can predict whether that marriage will hold together or not. So that's, you know, that's his science, right? And he's not faith-based or anything like that. It's just scientific evaluation. And you can study and check him out. I, I read all kinds of crazy stuff. But, but there's an interview that he did um, for the Atlantic newspaper um, in 2014. And the, the person was like, okay, I want to hear some, what is the key? If there is a key to the couples that stay in love versus the ones that, and stay married and fall back in love over and over again, what is the core of that? How does that work? What is the secret sauce? And so he's interviewed, and I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. The first quote he gives is this. He says, contempt, contempt they have found is the number one factor that tears couples apart. People who are focused on criticizing their partners miss, catch this, a whopping 50% of the positive things their partners are doing. And they see negativity when it's not even there. People who give their partner the cold shoulder, who deliberately ignore their partner or respond minimally to them, damage the relationship by making their partner feel worthless, invisible, as if they're not there or not valued. Contempt, he said, is the thing that undermines relationships. What is contempt? It's like a mixture of disgust and anger. It's starting with the, that person can't do anything right. I don't believe the best in them. The core value of them is something that's less than. And so everything they do moves from there. And when you start with that picture of a person, you see things that aren't even there. And you miss things that are there. And it is the death knell for a loving relationship. It can't survive it, he said, scientifically. Quote number two, so what was, the, what was the glue? What holds it together? Here's this quote, kindness. What was that? Kindness. On the other hand, glues couples together. 
Research, independent from, from just my own, has shown that kindness, along with emotional stability, is the most important predictor of satisfaction and stability in a marriage. Kindness makes each partner feel cared for, understood, validated, and loved. Kindness. He says, hey, you know what it is? It's one of these characteristics of agape love. That when it's on display, relationships seem to do something that other ones don't. He has this fascinating thing about resolving conflict, and I'll paraphrase it for you because I'm running out of time. He says, he says that there are repair conversations that have to happen whenever there's conflict. Married folks, you know this. Not married folks, you know this too. Repair conversations that have to happen. And so for years, decades, they studied repair conversations because they were looking for the key for successful repair conversations. I'm, 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 I'm wounded, I'm grieved. There's a breach in our relationship. So we have to talk it out. What are the skills and the talents of the person who's able to talk through that and land in a growing, loving relationship are the ones that diverts. And he goes, after years and years and years and years, we realized something. There's no secret. There's no key in having the right repair conversation. There isn't a set of words or a set of empathy or a set of depth or a creative way of speaking. There's not like a phrase that you have to sit there. It doesn't work. There's nothing. It's sometimes there's these deep, drawn out emotional conversations and they rift and they go the other direction. And sometimes it's cheesy and it's like, oh, sorry. And they're like, I know. And then they're back together. He's like, the repair conversation isn't the thing. Because here's the thing. And, and, and I'll, I'll paraphrase his words. He goes, the thing is, what is the depth of the emotional well that you've poured into the other person before the tension happened? Have you been kind to them? Have you been loving to them? Have you built them up? Have you picked them up? Have you believed the best of them? Have you poured into them that they're valuable and important and cared for? And, and if that is the case, then you can make it through almost any repair conversation with very limited skill. My favorite example, again, I'll give you just one. He talked about this guy who's a scientist, and the scientist uh, was always late for dinner because he had experiments going on, and they never knew when they were going to be done, and so he was always late. So there was tension at home, right? And so he came home, and the wife was like, listen, you're always late, and the kids don't want to eat without you, and the food's cold, and you say you're going to be home at a certain time. You're never home when you say you're supposed to be home, and the kids are hungry, and they're grumpy. And so he goes, hey, if the kids are hungry and grumpy, why don't you just give them a snack? You can imagine that didn't go over very well. Are you saying that I'm not intelligent enough to give my children a snack? That is not the answer that I'm looking for you as an excuse to why you're late. And so temperature starts rising, right? So he recognizes, oh, crud, I whiffed, right? And he's a scientist, got like a bow tie, red bow tie, and he just goes. <laughs> and that's the whole repair conversation. I'm recognizing I just blew it, and I can't say any more things. And she laughs, and they embrace, and she knows he's sorry. Why? Because he's built into her, that she's valuable, that he loves her, that there's care, that well is deep. So the skill set isn't, can you have the conversation? The skill set is, can you agape love somebody? Can you build them up with kindness? Are you patient with them? Do you care about what they care about? Come on now. Can you take your strength and energy and use it to serve and prop them up? And if you do that, come on now, you can fall back in love. You can fall back in love. So, if you're living 1 Corinthians 13, you have hope. You have hope. Second thing, I'm running out of time. I got 70 more minutes. <laughs> I dare you to love like God. I dare you to love like God. I dare you to love like God. 1 John chapter 4, 
verse 7. It's funny because, I don't know if you've ever been around an older married couple that just starts to pick up the same characteristics. They laugh at the same jokes. They tell the same stories. They just, their faces start looking alike. It's just weird. (laughs) And the same thing's true with God. We spend time with God. And we become like those old married folks. And we just start looking like each other. We lean on each other. The words that come out of my mouth are his, his words because I've spent time with him. You want to love like God, you have to cultivate the relationship with God. First John chapter 4, verse 7. I'm just going to just kind of jump through a whole bunch here. <clears throat> if I speed up here, get the podcast and listen to it slower. <laughs> Let me drink some water before I read. I'm in verse 7. And John, the same guy that wrote Revelation a little bit earlier, writes this. He goes, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Agape comes from God. This kind of love, we should love each other because it's coming from God. Everyone who agapes has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not do that doesn't know God because God is love. That's the stuff of him. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, he lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Here's the problem. He's trying to say, you don't understand God's love. You're trying to box up God's love as something that you can generate, you can create, but we've got to love each other and recognize that the origin of that love is God. And also we have to recognize that there is not a cap or a capacity to that love. It is larger because God literally is that stuff and it cannot be contained if we access it. And, And here's the thing I love. We don't realize that God loves us in an extravagant volume. That there, I love that God's love is, is described as like it, it beyond and exceedingly more. It's not just love. You know, if you think about like John 3, 16, for God loved the world that he gave his only son. That would be, that would be okay. That would make sense. If all we ever heard was for God loved the world, so he gave his only begotten son. We'd go, yeah, God loved the world. But I love that John's like, no, 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 no. God didn't just love the world. For God what? So loved the world. What is that? He's saying there is a volume and it is massive and it is excessive and it is available to us. And he so loved the world. It's a picture of of just an overflowing abundance of that love that he poured in when he sent his son for each of us. And so we have this idea about love that that is just too small. And so you say, well, I want you to love like God. And you're like, oh, that's hard. It is. If you're trying to do it on your own. Verse 13, we know that we live in him and he is in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. He's like, there's this whole thing of God interacting and dwelling with us and being with us. And if you acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in you and you are in God. And now we know and we rely, what do we rely on? On the love that God has for us. That's where our dependence is. That's where our source is. That's where our structure is. Why? Because God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. He's like, basically, God doesn't leave us on our own to love like this. It's an outside power source that we can rely on and it's from God. Sometimes we feel like we've got nothing left in our love tank for someone. Like I'm out. 
I poured out everything I had. That's okay. God has more. God's your source. God will energize and fill that. The wrong kind of love requires someone else to fill your tank. Either you got to generate it yourself, they got to please you, they got to somehow encourage you, they got to fall into whatever role dynamic you need them in, they got whatever it is. God's like, that's not the kind of love that will sustain you. I'll keep going. In this way, love is made, verse 17, complete among us. This is amazing. So that we'll have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we're like him. I don't know if that gets into your brain or if those are just words. He says, in this way, because of this love, love is made complete among us so that we'll have what? Confidence when? On the day of judgment. He's saying, when you get face to face with Jesus on the other side of eternity, you're gonna be confident. Why are you gonna be confident? Because you already understand how his love works. There's no reason to be anything less than confident because it's like, ah, I'm with the creator, the source of the love that he's been given to me. I'm now in the presence of that. Verse 18, there's no fear in that love because perfect love drives out fear. And fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. I'll stop right there. He says, hey, the enemy of love is fear. Can I just be real for a second? When I dare you to love like God, the reason you don't want to do it is because it's costly. Because someone might take advantage of you. You might have to love someone you don't like very much. You may have to see a value in someone that God sees even when you don't want to see it. And fear's the thing that keeps us from doing that because no one wants to be used or manipulated or feel like somehow there's some kind of agenda that we're experiencing. So John's like, the, the reason, the only reason you wouldn't do this is if you were afraid that somehow this well of reserve of love that God gives to you wouldn't sustain you through loving that person. He's saying don't have boundaries. He's not saying don't have boundaries. He's saying you never lose sight of the internal, entrenched value of the human that God breathed life into. You never lose that. You never lose that. Let me give you an illustration and we'll close it up. I'm gonna use Braden since he's in the room here. You don't have to get up. You can just sit there. Imagine Braden was a little bit older than he is, but he's my boy. And there's a season in his life, which he's passed, where I trusted him with a tricycle. That was a big step. I had to trust that he wouldn't hurt himself. I had to trust that he wouldn't leave it somewhere, which was more likely than anything else. Come on, moms and dads. I had to trust because it had monetary value. I had to trust that he wouldn't go too far, that he would look around the neighborhood before he rolled out into the street. There was a level of trust that I had to have when he got into tricycle world. But he didn't stay in tricycle world. He got bigger. And pretty soon I had to trust him with a bike. Now this is a little bit different. All of a sudden now he can go fast. He can hurt himself. He can still lose it, lose it leave it somewhere, forget it, right? All of a sudden, he could get outside of my sight and reach further, faster. There was a level of trust I had to put there. For some of us, when we were younger, it meant that we didn't have to be home. We could like we had miles of territory instead of blocks of territory, right? The streetlights were going to come on in like six hours. Have fun. Remember when that was? Remember when we used to play outside? Like helicopters, the search helicopters didn't go up if we were gone for more than fifteen minutes. Miss those days. But that's yeah, that, that's the kind of trust that we have. Now, someday he's going to turn 16. 
I'm going to trust him with something else. You wish, Brayden. <laughs> and Brayden and I are going to have a conversation, and it's going to go something like this. You know this thing, this key that I'm handing you? You're getting behind the wheel of a weapon. Not only can it take you places, it can do damage, it can be destructive, so you need to be responsible. You need to leave your phone off, whatever device you have in six, seven more years. <laughs> Maybe 20 more years by the time I let you drive. <laughs> right? And there's a conversation about, about trust that's gotten bigger and deeper because it's a more important thing. It's larger. Now, I want you to imagine, I'll put all three of these up here for a minute. I want you to imagine Braden's 20. He's rolling around in this vehicle that I've entrusted him with. Maybe he's 16, 17, living in my house. And he comes home and he's like, Dad, I'm going to ride the bike. I'm going to go for a bike ride. And I go, ah, 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 ah. You aren't responsible enough to be entrusted with that anymore. Like, you might leave that somewhere behind. He's like, Dad, I just threw the keys on the counter. Why don't you trust me with the bike anymore? That would be crazy, right? Why would we do that? Let me bring this home. When we go to God early on in our journey, it's like we want to trust him just for baby steps, right? Like, oh, I'm not sure what's going on. I'm come check things out for a little bit. And I'll, I'll just trust you like tricycle level. I'll listen a little bit. I'll hear a little bit of what's going on, right? And then pretty soon we start saying, okay, I'm not sure, God, what you're all about. But if you're there, right, would you help me in this situation? We start going to him and saying, you know, would you help me make a decision to work? If you're there, would you show up? Would you do something? Would you, would you somehow, whatever that stuff it is that you do, would you? And you start kind of getting a little bit to bicycle level. And then somewhere along our journey, we say, all right, God, my whole life is yours. I just trust you. I trust you with, with everything I am. I trust you with heaven and hell. I trust that you have a plan for me. I trust you with my family, my finances, my, my energy, my work, right? And we get to that, that highest level of trust. But here's what happens to us so often. We get to that highest level of trust with God. Like you have my whole being. And then we go back and say, okay, but I'm gonna manage the bicycles, right? I'm gonna manage the tricycles. I'm gonna manage the little stuff that I used to trust you with. I'm gonna manage those again. Yeah, I know you've got my salvation, but there's some relationship stuff here that I'm just gonna go ahead. I'm not, I don't wanna trust you with that. I'm gonna deal with that. I know you've got you know, my, my family as a whole taken care of, but I'm gonna go ahead and manage the financial piece my own way. I'm not gonna trust you with the, with the dollars and cents thing. I, do you see where I'm going? And somehow we move outside of that great trust relationship with God and fear starts to creep in for the bicycles, for the tricycles, for the other things. And here's, let's bring this home right now. If fear about I'm gonna do what God's called me to do in love, but somehow he's not going to take care of me in that is overriding your life, but you're trusting him for everything else, it's like woefully inconsistent. It's like, God, he counted the hairs on your head. He's intricately, intricately involved in your life. I'm having a bad vocabulary day. And God's like, can you just trust me with this bicycle? I know this is a big one. Can you just trust me with this? Your pastor's saying, can I just dare you to trust him with the way you love with and how you love people and the relationships in your life. Can I dare you married folks to, to, to give agape love another shot? Like, you don't understand, I emotionally can't stand her. You don't understand, I don't feel any emotional sparks towards him right now. Okay, I got you, I got you. That's a bummer, but I got you. But can we start with patience, kindness, 
not seeking evil for that person, not keeping a record of their wrongs, just not having the list going, oh, you made me more angry today. Oh, I can't wait till you come home and try to say this because I got 14 other things. Whatever it is. Come on, married folks. Can we start there? Can I dare you to do that? Some of you that are just in regular relational rifts right now. Man, you're at war with someone that's just on Facebook. You haven't even seen them in years. And you're all just like, cheeks are red every time you think about them. Man, can I just dare you to love like God? To just see their value? Can I challenge you? Like, I don't feel any of that for them. It's okay. If your feelings are going to go up and down, up and down, up and down. I don't need you to feel something. I need you to choose something. To access the love that God made available to you. And just love them that way. Can I challenge you to do that? Some of you, can I just challenge you to trust God again? Whatever the area is in your life, can I just dare you to the, the author and finisher of your faith to really love them and trust them? And just believe that he cares enough about your tricycles and bicycles. Like, oh, I got 30 bicycles and I need 31. Ah, I'll trust you. Can we just trust God again? Would you stand with me? I'm gonna pray. I love that today we had just a demonstrable outward declaration of our faith, but can we end with maybe just one more, one more demonstration as we pray? And I'm not going to ask you to do anything crazy. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes, just not because closing your eyes is more spiritual. It just gives you some privacy in the room. There's nothing in the scriptures that's like, when you close your eyes, God really listens. It's not a thing. But just because it's out of respect. And some of you, I just need to dare you. I need to dare you specifically in a relational context. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a friend or whatever. And listen, <laughs> there are some teeth. Some of you are going to need to get into some small groups or you're going to need to get into counseling. You're going to need to get into some support teams and put some people around you and you've been making excuses and you're just like, I don't like those people. I'm like, all right, agape, love them. Just do it. Can I just challenge and is there anybody in here that would accept the challenge? Say, you know what? I've been, I've been all up and down in my types and styles and approaches to love. What I need to do is give agape love a chance again. And whatever that relationship is, maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's a friendship, whatever. But you're like, yeah, that's me, and I don't want to leave out of the spot. Would you just lift a hand and say, yeah, that's me. Yeah, all over this place. <laughs> all over this place. You can put those hands down. And maybe you're in this place tonight, today, and you're just like, all right. God, I understand this picture of love, but I, I, I may have stepped out in faith at one point, but I'm like that early church. I, I, I've drifted away from my first love. I haven't loved you or people with a self-sacrificing, unconditional love. And it's time to recalibrate. It's time to remember that. It's time to move back into that. And today's your day where you say, you know what? I missed this. And John says, you, you can repent, you can change your behavior, you can move the other direction. Because if you don't, the lampstand's going out. The influence is going out. The picture of, of Jesus in your life is going out. And the people that you want to see meet Jesus aren't going to be able to meet them through you because he's not going to direct traffic in that unhealthy love. And you're like, no, I don't want that. I don't want that anymore. Maybe I've had it, but it's time for me to recalibrate and be the kind of representation of love that Jesus has called me to be and I haven't done it, would you just lift a hand just in an honest way saying, yeah, I need to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All over the place, yeah. See that hand, yeah. 
Jesus, today we just recognize our incredible need for you. We recognize that you're the source of that love, that you modeled that love. And we recognize what that love did and does for us. And God, I pray right now for broken hearts in this room that are specifically connected to relational damage that is real and the fallout is real and the damage is real and the pain is real and the hurt is real and the frustration is real and all of those things are real they're not just fabricated and there's reasons and it's it's not it's not some it's not crazy to feel that way but in the midst of all of that when our tank is empty you give us what we need why because you love us when we're out of control when we're in rebellion you showed us how that works and you're faithful to pour that into us would you fill us so that we could go into those relationships and be healers restorers redeemers because you're in the redemption business move in us and through us i pray in the name of jesus and for those of us that we just had the guts to be honest today and say god we need to start today doing the thing that you called us to do and love in that way. We may not know even how to do it initially, but you give us that. Help us to love that way. Help, maybe it just starts with patience. Maybe just give us some patience that we haven't had before. Help us to choose patience. Help us to choose kindness. Help us to choose self-control. Help us to be filled with that kind of love. Bring that definition of love into our heart and into our life so that we can just model that. And I pray for the influence. I pray for the families that are gonna be restored because of that commitment. I pray for the neighborhoods that are gonna be affected. And I pray for this body that's gonna be changed and transformed because men and women who are following Jesus made a decision to actually live and love the way he demonstrated. And it changes things. And heaven gets bigger. How cool is that? We love you and we thank you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.